chapter 4, and if you're visiting with us or a guest Sunday afternoons, we've been doing a study uh, through the book of Judges, considering the judges of Israel and their character and how God used them, and we find ourselves in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5 today, and we'll not read all of it right now, of course, we'll just work our way through as we go through. But the book of Judges, as you may have uh, found out as we've been in the, these lessons over the last you know, month or more, the book of Judges is kind of a gritty book. Like when you, you understand what I mean by that? Like you read the stories and it seems like it's, it's filled with action and it's filled with violence at times and sin and judgment of God. And when you just read through the stories, it seems like it, it sort of reads like an action novel in some ways. Like there's some grouping stories and some characters that when you study them out, they're like, man, those, those are amazing, amazing things that God used them to do. There's heroic people. Uh, and like, it's really not short of heroism in a lot of ways. Some of the things that we read about that, that God used heroic men and women for his purposes. And it's fascinating from that perspective alone, and yet it is full of truth for the children of God, full of principles for us in our day. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things that happened to the children of Israel were written for our admonition and our learning. And so we appreciate it in, in that aspect even more than just the stories that are told. The chapters that are before us today in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're actually introduced to two women who were used by God in great ways for His glory. Those women were Deborah and Jael. One of them was a respected leader in the nation. The other one, we would, would say, was just a, a regular lady, a regular housewife, if you want to call that. But they, they both came from different walks of life. They were both used by God in remarkable ways to accomplish His will. We're going to focus in on Deborah because we're considering and studying the judges of Israel. And so we're going to put our attention on her today. And I want to move through chapter 4 and chapter 5. And I want to present some facts here that present themselves in this tale, this story of rebellion, judgment, war, faith, and victory. And I want us to see how God uses courageous, faithful people uh, to deliver his people from bondage and oppression. And God just so happened to use a lady to do that. And we're going to look at Deborah, a woman of conviction and courage today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today and as we walk through this text, Lord, that as we read it and then make application from it, Lord, I pray that you'd use it to grow us uh, more like Jesus Christ and build our faith and strengthen us in the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to look at with me is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And what we're going to find here is the spiritual meltdown in Israel. Notice this. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron 
and twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Here we find the spiritual meltdown in Israel. These verses describe the horrible spiritual condition that existed in Israel during the time of Deborah. Notice, first of all, their corruption. Verse 1 says, The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. The Bible says here that Ehud, which we studied him before, delivered Israel from Eglon and the Moabites. And the Bible tells us that after Ehud, the land had rest from war for 80 years. Chapter 3 and verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. 80 years is a long time. 80 years is a time enough for another generation or two to come on the scene. And the Bible tells us that as long as Ehud lived, and as long as Ehud judged the nation, the people followed God. They served him. But when Ehud passed from the scene, the people returned to their sinful ways. And the Bible says that they again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges chapter 5 and verse 8 says they chose new gods. That was the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They chose new gods. The people of Israel had turned their back on God. The people of Israel had started following the gods of the Canaanites again. There was a spiritual void in their lives, and this new generation didn't really know God or His power. Eighty years is a long time. And this new generation comes up and they don't know God and they don't know his power and they chose for themselves new new gods. And the Bible tells us that when Ehud was no longer directing them, when Ehud was no longer guiding them to give them the truth, the Bible tells us they wandered right back into the wrong path. And we see the cycle repeating itself again. What is the cycle of the nation of Israel? They're blessed of God. They turn their back on God. They rebel against Him. God sells them into bondage. They're oppressed for X number of years. They get tired of it. They cry out to God. God hears them. God delivers them and restores them. And then the cycle starts to repeat itself again. And we see this happening again in the nation of Israel. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They no longer had Ehud to direct them. And now they've wandered from the right path. And here's an application in this. It's always sad when Christian people base their faith on those around them and they find their strength on those around them and not in the Lord Himself. As long as someone is pushing, as long as someone is encouraging, they're doing right, they're walking right. But when left to themselves... That relationship is non-existent. And it shows what's really in the heart. You see this in a number of areas. I remember, I used to see this all the time when I was running the campus ministry at the University of North Dakota. We go and, and, and on the campus and we have Bible studies and so on, and you meet these young people who come from different parts of the country and they've moved you know, to the University of North Dakota to go to school for whatever, and they come from religious backgrounds, they come from Christian homes, they're coming to this Bible study, and what you find out is that once they've left mom and dad, once they've left the confines of the church, once they've left all those things and they're out there on their own, 
all of a sudden, what's really in the heart is manifesting itself. They have no relationship with God, not a real one. And when people base their faith on the strength of others and not have a relationship with the Lord themselves, uh, it, as long as somebody's pushing, they seem to be doing well. Sometimes you see this in homes where a husband relies on the wife for spiritual strength and so on. And as long as the wife is pushing, and as long as the wife is saying, we need to go to church, and as long as the wife is doing that, it seems like he's coming along. But if it's left to him, it's non-existent. That's a, that's a sad thing. It's a shame. God wants each of us to have a relationship with Him ourselves. Teenager, you can't rely on the faith and the strength of mom and dad. You need to develop a relationship with God yourself. You can't ride the coattails of your parents. Church member, you cannot rely on and, ha- and, 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 and live off the strength of your pastors. You need a relationship with God yourself. You need to know the mind and the will of God for yourself. That's how God intends it. The nation of Israel, when Ehud died, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 2, so you see their condition. You see their corruption there. Verse 2, you see the chastisement. Notice verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera. Here we find the chastisement. When Israel rebelled against God, God responded by giving them over to their enemies for punishment, to oppress them. The Bible says that God sold them. You notice that in verse 2? God sold them. It means to turn over or it means to give up. In other words, the idea here is God let them go to live the life they wanted to live to ultimately end up experiencing the natural result of that. God gave them over. Let them go. That's what you want. That's how you're going to be. God gave them over to their enemies to the life they chose for themselves. In chapter 5 and verse 8, the Bible says they chose new gods. Then was war in the gates. That was the result when they walked away from the Lord. You know what? They took themselves out from under the protection of God. They did. They took themselves out from under the protection of God. And they ended up paying a terrible price for their rebellion. The condition of the nation is described in chapter 5 and verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, jail, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose as a mother in Israel. We talked about this last week. The, the, uh, uh, the nation of Israel, not only were they controlled by Jabin, the king, but they were also oppressed by the Philistines, and, and they were weak in their, their physical strength, and they were, they were often attacked and so on, and it caused the people to not walk on the highways for danger. So they'd go through the, 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 back, the back streets, or if you will. They wouldn't even live in their homes in the villages because of being raided and plundered and so on. They were literally driven from their highways and from their homes. The problem was that they took themselves out from under the hand of protection from God. 
No, stay awake, okay? I know, you just ate a lot of good food. Sunday afternoon is warm in here. Start to fall asleep. Don't let it overtake you. Stay awake, okay? There's some principles and some lessons here. And you need to fight for that. I'm going to make an application here. There's still a high price to pay for disobedience to the will of the Lord. You know, when people are part of a New Testament church, they are under the umbrella of protection in the hand of God in some ways. But there's lots of people who they get disgruntled about this or they get disgruntled about that, and all of a sudden they decide, you know what, I'm not going to be here. I'm walking away. And you know what we do? When we choose new gods and we choose our own way and we walk away from where God really wants us to be, we are in danger of pulling ourselves out from under the umbrella of protection from God. You just mark it down. And how many times has it been seen over the years? How many times has it been seen? People make that decision because they just, they got this and they got that. They're going to do their own thing. And later on down the line, later on down the road, where do you find with their family? What do you find in their life? You find nothing but a train wreck. Why? It didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. People take themselves out from under the protection of God when they choose their own ways and they choose for themselves new gods, when we choose our ways over His ways, when we choose to follow other gods instead of Him, we can expect His displeasure. And if we're really a child of God, God's not going to let us just walk away. God's just not going to let us go uh, without some sort of correction, some sort of chastening. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, you can turn over there, Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 6, the Bible says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had... Fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much uh, rather be in subjection under the Father of spirits and live? Notice here, we can keep reading on because in verse 10 he says that, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might uh, be partaker of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God says, you wander away, I'm going to bring chastening into your life. And I do that with every son of mine. And the Bible says if you endure chastening, God's dealing with you as with a son. Praise the Lord. If you can go on and live that life without chastening in your life, then you're not his. You're a bastard. You're an illegitimate child. You're not a son of God. Because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he says, you've got fathers after the flesh who bring correction into your life. And, and how much more God who really loves you and they do it for their pleasure, but God does it for our profit. And it's not joyful. It's grievous at the time. But what does it yield in your life later on? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so praise the Lord if he deals with us as with sons and with correction. 
And I don't know how God would do that in a person's life. That's up to God. It's his prerogative. He might do that to, he might touch your health and he might bring you down to your knees or lay you flat on your back to get you to wake up and listen. He might do that through your finances. You might be doing really well financially. And then all of a sudden, every, the bottom falls out and you got nothing. He might do that. He might touch your kids. He may not bring that correction in your life at all. Not in the form of something to you, but it might show itself in the lives of your children. I don't know. I don't know how God would do that. But one thing I do know is that God said He would if you're His child. And if He doesn't, then you aren't His. But the nation of Israel belonged to the Lord. He brought chastening into their life because they turned their back on Him again. Look at verse 3 of our text. Go back to chapter 4. Judges 4 and verse 3. And here you find their cry. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron in 20 years. He mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Israel was oppressed by Jabin and his armies for 20 years. And as far as Israel was concerned, Jabin, he was undefeatable. Jabin was, was all-powerful as far as they were concerned. The Bible says he possessed a powerful army anchored with 900 chariots of iron. The chariots of iron usually represented a pretty small percentage of, a, of an army in those days. And so you can imagine how big Jabin's army actually was. He had 900 chariots of iron. The chariots of iron represented the, the, the most technologically advanced weaponry in those days. There was no chance Israel stood against defeating Jabin. They were helpless in their armies. They were no match for this enemy. And according to Judges chapter 5 and verse 8, they chose new gods, then was war in the gates. Was there a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? They didn't even have any weapons. They were a conquered, defeated people. They were people without hope. And eventually, they came to the place where they were tired of that situation. And the Bible says they cried out, to the Lord. And the Lord heard them. And that cycle would repeat itself again. Do you know, Israel never seemed to realize that walking with the Lord and honoring His word and His ways brought blessing into their life. And when they rebelled and went into wickedness, it always brought His judgment into their life. They never seemed to figure that out. But before we're too judgmental of the nation of Israel, we better take a look in the mirror first. Because that seems like we struggle with that lesson in our day as well. And you know what? People get themselves into trouble and they find themselves in trouble and they want deliverance from their problems rather than looking at the root of the issue, which is their stubborn, sinful will. So we see the spiritual meltdown of the nation of Israel. In verses 4 to 24, we get into the story of Deborah. And here we see the special ministry of Deborah. Notice first of all her position, verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Here's her position. The Bible very clearly says that Deborah was both a prophetess and a judge in Israel. Her name means bee. 
And I was reading about this, Matthew Henry, the commentator, he said that her very name suggests the work of the bee. Industrious, sharp perception, discernment, great usefulness, sweetness to her friends, and sharpness to her enemies. Her name means bee. That's not really relevant, I don't think, in the whole story of things, except for the fact that she was industrious, she was useful to the Lord. The word prophetess suggests that she received direct revelation from the Lord and shared that word with his people. Deborah's not the only prophetess that's mentioned in the Bible. There's others like Miriam and Huldah and Anna, etc. There's others that are called a prophetess in the word of God. The word judge lets us know that she settled disputes among the people of Israel. And that's indicated in verse 5. Verse 5 says she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she settled disputes between or among the people in Israel. They came to her with their problems. She rendered judgment. And in a very real sense, Deborah was the leader of the nation in those dark days. Now notice verses 6 and 7. We see her prophecy. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. So here Deborah receives a word from the Lord. She calls Barak, and, and the, 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 the message is to take 10,000 soldiers and go to war with the enemy. The Lord promised to defeat Sisera, the Canaanite general. God promised great victory if they would simply trust him and obey him and go to war. So Deborah gets the message from God. She delivers the message, but now notice her problem. Look at verse 8. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. So here Deborah has this word from the Lord. She shares that word with Barak. She finds out that Barak seems to be afraid to follow the word, and he's willing to go to battle, but only if Deborah will go with him. So she agrees to go to the battle because she believes the Lord. However, she tells him that since he depended on a woman, the glory of that victory was going to be given to a woman. Now look at verses 10 down through 24. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenanite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent into the plain of Zanaim, which is by Kedesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Horasheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? 
So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Horesheth of the Gentiles. And all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Howbeit, Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him again, or, and covered him. Again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be, when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, and took a an hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died." And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So, here we found the story of how this whole thing turns out. And when you consider the fact that Israel didn't have any weapons, in, in chapter 5 and verse 8, tells us they didn't have spear or shield. They had no standing army. What Barak and Deborah did was an amazing act of faith. When they trusted God, God gave them great victory. Verse 15 tells us that God discomfited Sisera, and his armies. And in Judges chapter 5 and verse 21, the Bible says the river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon, O oh my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Chapter 5 tells us sort of what happened. Uh, as they fought, God allowed the Kishon River to maybe overflow its banks. Maybe all of those, those iron chariots of Sisera became stuck in the mud and they became useless. The river swept even some of the soldiers away by the currents, probably. But the Bible says that God discomfited them. And in chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible tells us that all the soldiers of Sisera were slain. Then what happens is Sisera, seeing that his army is defeated, he flees the battlefield, but he flees on foot. And he went to the tent of a man named Heber, who was of the Kenites. Now, the Kenites were a people group who had at times aligned themselves with the nation of Israel, but they also had aligned themselves with Jabin. They seemed to always kind of try to play both sides. I did some study about the Kenites through the Old Testament, and you see that playing out over and over again. They, they were, they were kind of trying to play both sides all the time. Verse 17 tells us that Sisera fled away on his feet, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So Sisera asked Jael for a drink of water. 
and she brings him a glass of milk instead. Maybe it wasn't a glass, but you understand what I mean. She brings him milk instead. And that offer of milk served two purposes. One, it would have eased the mind of Sisera and convinced him that he entered the tent of a friend and he was safe. And he asked Jael to lie for him that if somebody comes asking for me, say nobody's here. But the second is that the milk would have helped him fall asleep. He was already tired from the battle. And when he drank that milk and he laid down in the darkness, it wouldn't be long for sleep to overtake him. Sort of like you sitting in the afternoon service on Sunday. Not too long for the sleep to overtake you. Verse 21 says that while he slept, Jael takes one of the tent nails and drives it through Sisera's head, killing him. That's pretty amazing. God used this woman to accomplish a great victory. Let me just stop right here and say just a quick word about ladies and ladies in the church. First of all, I'm thankful for you. Sometimes, sometimes women are overlooked and sometimes women are treated like second-class saints. That's not true in God's economy. You play a very vital role in the life of a church. Sometimes men think they're superior to women because they're supposed to be leading and so on. But without ladies and without your influence and without your role that you play in the church, things would not work right. Every single person in the body is necessary for the Lord's work. You know, your job, most of you are moms. Your job is not easy. Your job is to raise your children, take care of your families. And you might think that that's not a big, uh, a big deal, or you might think, that, or might think that that doesn't play a huge role or influence in the life of a church, but let me tell you it does. Your influence over your children and as they grow in the Lord plays a huge role in the life and the future of a church. Your role is, is, your role is, 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 is significant, in the life of a church. God has planned it that way. You have a huge influence besides all the other areas of ministry that wouldn't be the same without godly ladies who serve in those roles. There's so many things that go on even behind the scenes that we might just take for granted, but they always get done because of faithful ladies serving the Lord. And what I'm saying is, I thank God for you. Active ladies in the church, I appreciate you. It's not overlooked, and your labor is not in vain. So thank you. Now, having said that, I'm thankful for examples like Deborah. She was courageous. She was full of faith. Praise the Lord. But I also have to ask myself this question. Why did God raise her up? And why did God use her like that when His plan for leadership all along has been through men? Why did God do that? Let me suggest a few thoughts to you. Number one, God needed to do that because there were no real men who would do that. They were afraid. The Bible says that Jabin was strong in verse 3. He had 900 chariots of iron. The Bible tells us that even Barak, who was the general, he said, I'll go to war, but I'm only going to go if you go with me. 
These men didn't really know God or trust in Him or His power. The Bible says in chapter 5 and verse 8 that they chose new gods. Their own strength is what they relied on, and their own strength was weak. There wasn't a shield or a a, a spear uh, in or a sword in Israel. And even Barak, when he said, I'll go and fight, but I don't want to go unless you go with me. You know what? I dare say that he wasn't interested in the physical strength of what she could bring to the battle. I think he was more interested in the strength of her relationship with God. That's what he was interested in. And it tells us something. It tells us that that they didn't have one. There were no men who could do the job. The men were weak and they had no backbone. I think a second thing is that when there's no man, God is going to use what he has. God uses all kinds of things to perform and accomplish his will. He used women, he used children, he even used animals to accomplish his will. He could even use the stones if he wanted to. In this case, it was a lady. And praise the Lord for a faithful, courageous lady. You know what? There's a lot of times when many people are appalled at the sight or the thought of a woman in a place of leadership. But you know what really ought to be appalling? Is that that place and that responsibility of leadership has been abdicated by men. That's what should be appalling. The actual shame is that Deborah had to do this because there's no man that would do it. I've seen it in churches over the years on several occasions. What appears to be more ladies willing to serve and to testify than men. That's a shame. You know what? Men need to be servant leaders in the church. And I'm thankful that that's true here. I believe that is true here. But I'm saying to you, may it never be lost. Amen? Men need to be servant leaders in the church. Have a conviction about your role and responsibility and don't let it slip. And I say servant leaders on purpose because our job is to serve one another, to be a true servant, not just to tell people what to do, but to serve and lead through serving. Men need to be servant leaders in the home. Not just in the church, but in the home. You know what? Mom shouldn't be the primary disciplinarian in the home because dad has checked himself out. He doesn't want to deal with it. He's too tired. We're going to leave that to mom. That should never be. She shouldn't have to be the primary example of spirituality in the home either. Men need to model Christ's likeness and serve in the home. You know what? Sometimes we need some instruction in that, though. And sometimes we need our wives to help us out with that. Because we're not a good judge of our own character, and we're not a good judge of what we actually really look like. We need the mirror of someone else to show us. And sometimes it's good for a spouse in the home to say, you know what, you need to model this for us so that we can function like we're supposed to function. And it's good for a man to say, you know what? I appreciate that. Thank you for pointing that out to me, because I didn't see it. But I want to change it. 
The third suggestion is this. God having to raise up Deborah was actually a rebuke to the men of Israel. Israel was very patriarchal. It must have been an embarrassing shame for them. In fact, go to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, and I want you to note this. Verse 1, Isaiah 3 and verse 1. The Bible says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator, And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be an healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen, because their tongues and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. Skip down to verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of the past. God prophesied in the, for the nation of Israel and said that Israel being ruled by women and children, it was divine judgment, it wasn't blessing. And the question is, where are the godly men? God used Deborah and praised the Lord for courageous, faithful woman, but it was because there was no man. And when there is no man, God's going to use what he has. And thirdly, God raising up Deborah was actually a rebuke to the nation or to the men of Israel. So we see the spiritual meltdown in Israel. We see the special ministry that God used her to accomplish a great victory and deliver his people. But then you get into chapter 5, and we're not going to read all the way through chapter 5, but what you find is this song of thanksgiving and praise that Deborah and Barak wrote unto the Lord for the victory that he gave him. And the third thought is, the, is the, the sweet music of victory is what we find in chapter 5. The victory over Sisera results in Barak and Deborah launching out into song. And their song is recorded in chapter 5. It's a song of praise to God who gave them the victory over their enemy. Notice a couple of things. Go back to Judges chapter 5. In verses 1 through 12, they praised God for His virtues. We'll just look at a little bit of it. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out on the field of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped, and the clouds also dropped water. 
And he talks about in the days of Shamgar and the, the inhabitants of the villages ceased and so on. And, and then you get down to verse 9. My heart is toward the governors of Israel. They offered themselves willingly among the Lord. Bless ye the Lord. And so here they praise the Lord for his virtues. And the primary thrust of these verses is that they offered praise up to God for his wonderful works among the children of Israel. He gave them unity so that they could raise up an army. In verse 2, he says, the people willingly offered themselves. In verse 9, he says, they, they, that, that offered themselves willingly among the people, bless ye the Lord. God not only gave them unity, but his faithfulness was great to them, and he gave Deborah to them to lead. Verse 7 says, uh, the inhabitants of villages ceased, they ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose that I arose a mother in Israel. And then God allowed them to defeat their enemies and freed them from their bondage. They praised God for His power in their lives. And let me just say, as a side note, that is a valid reason for praising the Lord today, His power in your life. Just take a moment and inventory your life. Think about the times that God has been good to you, and that God has shown Himself powerful in your life. Have you ever had moments like that? Where you know that God did this, this was the hand of God, it was nothing of me. God did that for me. He showed Himself strong in my life. If you're saved and you belong to the Lord, you're already blessed beyond words. He's worthy of our love, our worship, and our praise. Praise Him. In verses 13 to 18, the Bible tells us they praised him for the volunteers. And we don't need to read all of that, but the story goes on that when the call went out for volunteers, only half of the tribes came out to fight. The rest of them refused to go to war. That's different than in the days of Joshua. In the days of Joshua, every tribe was expected to fight for the nation. But when Barak called for warriors, many wouldn't come. Look at verse 23. Of chapter 5. Curse ye, Moraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So many didn't come. And verse 23 says that the angel of the Lord cursed them because they refused to send volunteers to help. I think it's a shame in a church when the majority of the work that's supposed to be carried out by everybody is actually only done by a minority. I was teaching in our Sunday school class today on the subject of missions. And I've seen this many times in churches where it's a bigger church and they've got a missions program and they even have an evangelistic outreach program and maybe it's once a week or once a month or whatever it is and it's it's, it's a call for visitation. It's a call to, to do a Great Commission Day. It's a call for church work. And the same five people are the ones that always show up. That's a shame. I'm thankful to the Lord that when it's Great Commission Day around here, 90% of the church shows up. Praise the Lord. Let's not let that slip. Amen? Let's stay busy in the fight. They praise the Lord for the volunteers that did come. 
I'm thankful beyond that for those who are willing to do other kinds of work in the church. People who can be counted on to teach Sunday school lessons, to sing in the choir, to come to prayer meeting, to support the special meetings of the church, to go to work for the Lord in these dark days. God still blesses people who are faithful to Him. In verses 19 to 23, they praise God ultimately for the victory. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan and Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Then were the horse hooves broken by the means of the prancing and the prancing of their mighty ones. And they're praising the Lord for the victory that He gave them and the power of God to defeat their enemies. Let me just kind of bring this to a close here. As Deborah and Barak are closing their song of praise in chapter 5, Notice verse 24. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he laid down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? Her wise ladies answered her, Yea, she returned answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two, to Sisera a prey of divers colors, a prey of divers colors of needlework. Get down to verse 31. So let all the enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might, and the land had rest forty years. They close their song by praising the Lord for Jael. Jael was an unsung hero. She doesn't have a prominent role in Scripture, certainly. She didn't have a role in the nation of Israel. And yet God still used her to deliver his people. And they praised the Lord for the bra bravery of this woman in slaying Sisera. And I'm just going to make a quick application as I bring this to a close. I'm thankful for the same kind of heroes that we have here even today. The prayer warriors, the silent servants, the people who do little things that go unnoticed, the people who serve behind the scenes. You're necessary. You're instrumental in the life of this church. And people may not see all the things that you do, but God is watching. God watches when you serve, and I would encourage you, keep on keeping on. God is going to bless you. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. And in verse 31 closes out the story and the song of Deborah. And it reminds us that God ultimately is the one who's going to have the victory in the end, always. So keep on serving the Lord. Sometimes the way gets weary. Sometimes the path gets steep. 
Sometimes it's hard. The road is rough. There seems little reason from a human standpoint to carry on. But there is reason. Because one day we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. When he takes his children home, what we want to hear from him is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Here was a faithful, courageous woman. Somebody who could be used of God. God wants the same from us. He wants us to live a life that is pleasing to Him. A life that's available to Him. A life that He can use for His glory and ultimately is going to bring blessing into our own life. And verse 31 says, at the end, there was 40 more years of peace because of this one woman who's courageous and faithful. Praise the Lord for faithful servants. Amen? Be one too. Now, before it's all over, the cycle's going to repeat itself again. And we're going to see that next time as we get into the life of Gideon. Gideon's a great character, and we'll spend some time studying his life out. But prayerfully, it's been an encouragement and a blessing to you. I know it is to me, and it's an encouragement to stay faithful. God can use anyone. All we need to be is available and faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you just encourage people today. Sometimes the road is rough and it seems like the way is hard and there's lots of stuff that goes unnoticed. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to remember that ultimately you're the one who's watching. You know. You're in control. And my job is simply to be faithful to you, to be available to you. I'm thankful for servants of the Lord in this church. It's a blessing to serve with these people. And Lord, I pray that it, may, it would never be lost among us, but our faith would grow and we'd be stronger in the Lord. We'd be more profitable servants unto Thee. Lord, the issue of leadership, Lord, may it never be lost. May men have strong convictions about their role and their responsibility to be spiritual leaders not just to tell people what to do or to be the king of the castle, but to model Christ's likeness in their homes, to be servant leaders. And Lord, I pray that that's something that would never be lost. Lord, bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.